When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Adam Levy, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. This episode, The Invasion of Ukraine. At its heart, research is about the search for fundamental truths, the aspiration of putting the subjective aside to find something deeper, more universal. But the truth is that research is shaped by the people who carry it out, their lives, experiences, and the society in which they perform their work. And the freedom and safety of researchers to conduct their science has a dramatic influence not just on the scientists themselves, but on research as a whole. That's why in this series, we're looking at many different aspects of freedom and safety within research, from carrying out science in collapsing economies to dealing with harassment, both in the lab and online. Each episode in this series also concludes with a follow-up sponsored slot from the International Science Council, the ISC, about how it's exploring freedom, responsibility, and safety in science. In today's episode, we're looking at an event which has devastated the lives of scientists and ground research projects to a halt, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Today, we'll speak with a Ukrainian scientist working on a new type of education and an Arctic researcher who will explain how the war is hampering vital studies. But first, I spoke with neuroscientist Nana Foytenko of the Kiev Academic University, who is also scientific advisor to the Minister of Education and Science of Ukraine. Her life and work has been upended by war. When we spoke, I asked her how the research landscape had been altered since the war broke out on the 24th of February 2022. I would say on national scale, science in Ukraine has suffered enormous damage. According to the Ministry of Education and Science, out of, as far as I remember, 314 scientific Mm -hmm. institutes and universities, 73 were damaged and six were completely destroyed. And another big problem is that about 15% of scientists went abroad. Some of them have no place to return to. And some may not want to return because they ended up in better conditions than they had in Ukraine. So I think it will lead to a big brain drain. And this is a big problem for Ukrainian science. And how has the invasion affected you personally, both both in your life 
and for your work? Oh, yeah, it was terrible situation. I, I remember that first day, then my son, uh, who lives in, in the United States, called me at 5 a.m. and uh, said that the war had begun and that Kiev was being bombed and that I should immediately leave the city. At first, I really did not believe it. I said that it was a stupid joke. Why you wake me up? I want to sleep. But... When I heard the explosions that seemed to be very close to my place, of course, the dream was taken away. During that first day, I received a call from my friends from the U.S. who are close to diplomatic circles, and they said that there is reliable information about the plans of Russians to seize Kiev, kill the government and its most active supporters, and after that, people with an active pro-Ukrainian position will be sent to concentration camp. So with my active position, I have repeatedly posted uh, in, on Facebook pro-Ukrainian post. In addition, Russian propaganda these days began to intensively disperse the information about biological laboratories which are funded by the U.S. government, which conduct genetic experiments to create biological weapons against Russians. We just realized that this is just about us. We are doing genetic research, and this research is supported by an age grant. Such nuances that we are trying to find a cure for chronic pain rather than inventing weapons would hardly uh, have worried by Russian aggressors. So we decided to leave Kiev. Next day, after the invasion, we took the guys from our laboratories with us and went to Carpathians Mountain. It was very, really, very scary to leave. I was afraid that I would never return to my apartment back to Kiev. We also did not know if we would get to Bukavel because they were bombing and shooting around. It was really very, very scary. Immediately behind us, when we passed the bridge across the Irpin River, the, that bridge was blown up. There was no way back either. We drove non-stop for 22 hours. So we, we, we reached Bukaville, and we were glad to be safe, but we were very worried about those who remained in Kyiv. Many important events were planned for March and April 2022, and everything had to be cancelled. Another uh, heavy blow was the complete sequestration of the National Research Foundation's budget. It was transferred uh, for the needs of army. So our laboratories had to fulfill too large grant from this National Research Foundation, and these studies had to be postponed. But, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. The fact that two years before the war we learned to work remotely thanks to COVID helped us a lot. That they continued to work. We analyzed data, wrote articles, they delivered lectures to students and even organized the Brain Awareness Week. We returned to Kiev at the end of April. Then the Kiev region was liberated. And fortunately, our laboratories were not physically damaged. But of course, I had to revise the plan. But this is just a delay, I believe. And what is the research situation for you now in Kiev? Are you able to, to some extent, continue where you left off? Or is it hard to get things started again? Is there a cloud hanging over you now? 
you see, we started in summer. We even did experiments, uh, but unfortunately, big problems began after the October 10th, and the Russia began bombing civilian infrastructure and residential areas. So on October 10, I remember, I was literally thrown out of the bed early in the morning and pictures fell from the walls because a rocket flew just 20 meters from our house. And it was very, very scary. And then the blackout started. Then in the labs, everything was much more difficult. It was necessary to provide electricity for refrigerators, freezers, incubators. By the way, the problem was not so much in money, but in their purchase itself. Accumulators, battery, generators instantly run out in Ukraine. And we bought them in Poland and in Czech Republic. So autumn and winter were very difficult for our research. Due to the lack of heat, for example, laboratory animals in our vivarium experienced cold stress. I, I would say no time was wasted, but the experimental work slowed down substantially. We were able to organize internship for our fellows and students abroad. So many universities, you know, in Europe and the U.S. accepted our guys so they can do some research there. And now situation is much better. So no, no blackouts anymore. And so we started to return back to our almost normal experimental life. You mentioned that the COVID pandemic had, in, in a way, sort of trained you for working remotely. But at the same time, coming out of one really serious disruption and then into this conflict, did these two crises compound each other in any way? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, so Because we have some slowing down during COVID and uh, some of our grants were postponed or extended or freeze. The military crisis was superimposed not only with the crisis of COVID, but also on the crisis of science that existed in Ukraine, even before the war and even before the COVID. Underfunding, inefficient ways of financing and managing of science, lack of peer review, lack of evaluation of performance indicators, all this greatly hindered the development of science in the country. And it was over the 30 years of independence. And we desperately need reforms and deregulations. How do you think researchers and research institutions around the world can contribute to that vision of not only restoring research in Ukraine, but perhaps modernizing it as well? I think many, many institutions would like to help. They would like to invest in the development of our country. Many universities in Europe and the US uh, who help uh, our colleagues to find a temporary shelter in their universities and institutions and that helped us a lot to survive. And I really appreciate this help. When you look at how much academia in Ukraine has been disrupted, not just your own work, but the academic landscape in general, how does that make you feel as someone who's really built their career in the country? Oh, 
Uh, it's disrupted, of course, but you see these scientists themselves now trying somehow to help the system uh, to, to be reloaded. A lot of, for example, my fellows, especially young ladies who left country with their kids uh, to protect them, but they would like to return back to family because their husbands are here. Of course, it would take time, but finally we will somehow be able to, to restore our science. Is there anything that you really think the international community should be aware of about research in Ukraine that, that isn't really being spoken about in the, at the time that we speak, uh, just over a year that the war has been going on? The international community needs to know that we are ready to work here in Ukraine and we are ready to accept their help and we are ready to do our best to restore science and education here because we have a lot of uh, possibility and our Ukrainian diaspora also would like to help us and we, we are ready to, to accept this help and to restore science here. That was Nana Foytenko. As Nana mentioned, many Ukrainians have fled the country. But for people at the start of their academic journeys, still in education, such disruption comes at a pivotal point. For physicist and climate scientist Lyubov Poshivalo-Struber, when the war broke out, it was vital to take action to keep educational opportunities alive. Lyubov is based at the Forschungszentrum Jülich in Germany, and she is also a Ukrainian. I was born in Ukraine, so I studied uh, there my university, my bachelor. I graduated from my bachelor. I decided to write my master thesis in Germany. And since that time, I'm in Germany. So in Ukraine, I, I lived for, yeah, around 22 years. <laughs> Lyubov is also a member of the executive team of the Ukrainian Global University, abbreviated to UGU. More on this very different university in a moment. But first, Lyubov shared some of the impacts of the war on the lives of Ukrainian scientists. The life of every Ukrainian obviously was uh, changed during the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And the usual routine of students and scientists was not an exception. Thousands of students and scientists had to flee abroad to continue their study or career in safe conditions. In Ukraine, there are daily air alarms, and that just makes the process of study or work often impossible. Often, educational institutions, they don't have proper bomb shelters or constant power supply, internet supply. Just on a personal level, what does it mean to you to see this scale of disruption to Ukrainian academia? I, I think that uh, to absorb war in general in your own country, it's hard. Even to be not sitting there, but to absorb that from the news, from talking to your parents from the distance, that's hard in general. And the first three days of the war, uh, they were just endless for, for everyone, not only in academia. To see the level of damage everywhere, it, it, it's hard. <laughs> it's heartbreaking. 
and seen that a lot of educational institutions are just bombed, a lot of schools are bombed. For me, I'm thinking with all of that, how current uh, generation of scientists, of kids, how they will accept all of this. It's just heartbreaking. <laughs> so I suppose to, in part to try and combat this disruption, you've been involved with the Ukrainian Global University, or UGU. C- can you explain what the UGU actually is? At the beginning of the war, it was not clear what people should do. Everyone just tried to make something useful. With that, a lot of new initiatives were launched, uh, and one of them was the Ukrainian Global University, abbreviated UGU, which I'm representing today. UGU was launched in March 2022, during the first weeks of the Russian invasion. The initiative was founded by the Kiev School of Economics, together with partners from the government, educational institutions, and civil society organizations. And it aims to identify talented students, teachers, scientists in Ukraine, provide them with new educational and research opportunities with the help of the international community and donors, and facilitate their further careers in Ukraine for rebuilding the country. One of the main goals also of the UGU is to preserve and multiply human capital of Ukraine, as it is important for the strong development of the country for the post-war recovery. So each of these students aim to come back to Ukraine further and to rebuild the country after the war. Can you give a sense of the scale of the Ukrainian Global University? Just how many, how many people is it supporting? Since the launch of the program, UGU brought together more than 60 world's best educational institutions. On the other hand, UGU gathered a large network of volunteers. Uh, also, within first two months of the initiative, during the application process, UGU received more than 2,500 applications from Ukrainian students. At the end, about 60 students were selected by UGU partners and they already started their studies abroad this academic year. What are the limitations of this form of education that the UGU is modelling? During the first year of UGU, UGU also faced some difficulties. And one of them, for example, is that men between the age of 18 to 60 nowadays cannot leave Ukraine. We are thinking, or when we talk to the partners, we need to communicate this issue properly. UGU could create some program, for example, for students who are in Ukraine now, like research internships in Ukraine or non-residential research fellowships. So men who are in Ukraine and who cannot leave Ukraine now due to the restrictions because of the war, they also could study in Ukraine. How do you feel having been able to work with the UGU and to be able to to offer the services that the UGU has offered so many researchers and, and young academics? For me, I, it's just a simple human need to contribute now to Ukraine, to help Ukraine during the war. I also could say that UGU at the first year, it was purely voluntarily work for many of us. And I was impressed how... Ukrainians, so not only Ukrainians, could gather together without any payment, basically, and they could work efficiently for providing support for Ukrainian students. So that was just great. 
What are the prospects or potential challenges for re-establishing academic institutions in Ukraine after the conflict? It's a hard question, a bit philosophical maybe. Um, one of the challenges in general to move back people that left Ukraine, one of the challenges is that these people saw different life, let's say, <laughs> different organization in the society. So there must be something that can attract these people back. And this is the huge challenge. I think every student that submitted the application for the UGU, they really have the wish and the hope to restore Ukraine after the war. But the question is also how long this wish will be kept there. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And how Ukrainian government could contribute to increasing this motivation of people to come back. I think this will be the huge challenge. That was Lyubov Poshivalo Struber. It's clear just how much the war has disrupted science and scientists within Ukraine. But the truth is that the impacts to research go far beyond the borders of this nation. Science is international, and Russia plays a crucial role in many research collaborations. But the war has called that into question, and old academic ties and teams have been threatened. Matthew Druckenmiller is based at the National Snow and Ice Data Center at the University of Colorado Boulder in the United States. For many years, he's been focused on Arctic research. And I've also, in, in recent years, in addition to my role as a research scientist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center, I'm also the director of an office called the Navigating the New Arctic Community Office. I wanted to speak with Matthew about how Arctic research has been impacted by this war. But first, he shared with me just how broad the field of Arctic science is. Well, it probably comes as no surprise that much of Arctic research today is connected in some way to climate change. The changing climate is impacting Arctic environments, Arctic economies, essentially everything you can imagine. I would say that the Arctic... Uh, and of course, I'm biased because I've spent most of my research career working in the Arctic. But I would say that the Arctic really is an example of highly interdisciplinary research and also research that in the last several decades has made great strides in working in greater collaboration with indigenous communities. So how then does the war in Ukraine affect Arctic science and the ability of scientists to work in the Arctic? Russia geographically spans an enormous portion of the Arctic. Within the Arctic region, Russia occupies a huge percentage of, of both the land and the marine environment. And I think Russia has over 50% of, of Arctic coastline. And so the war in Ukraine has a very direct impact on scientific studies in the Arctic, scientific observations, purely because collaboration with countries outside of Russia is severely limited. Access to the Arctic has been diminished incredibly. Has it completely put a halt to collaborations with Russian scientists, as well as access to the region? 
Well, so speaking, you know, on, on behalf of probably kind of the average U.S. Arctic researcher, there is, uh, in general, nothing that prohibits an individual U.S. researcher from continuing collaboration with a Russian colleague. But in practice, there are concerns regarding the safety of, of colleagues in Russia because formal communication, even if it's purely scientific, is putting those Russian researchers in risk because, as I understand it, most Russian scientists have been uh, directed to not collaborate with foreign scientists. Are there informal channels that are being pursued to maintain relationships, to potentially even share data? I suspect they are existing. Most of the U.S. researchers that I know who work in the Russian Arctic are ones that have been doing it for a very long time, over decades building relationships. And I suspect the vast majority of them have been entirely disrupted, the relationships with the Russian colleagues. But I'm guessing that that there are some that have found ways to continue because of of how longstanding their relationships have been and and the different informal channels that they use to, to share information. Just how significant is this rift then for the discipline of Arctic science? The war in Ukraine disrupts this in a way where the impact will prevent those longstanding relationships from thriving, from continuing. And as an academic, as a researcher, you base your career and your decisions about what research to pursue largely based on the partners that you're actively able to work with. And so when you're unable to to collaborate with, say, Russian scientists, you as a researcher need to shift focus towards building new relationships. And, And that translates to different research awards that may not be focused on the Russian Arctic. And so there is this momentum that's built in behind this disruption that orients researchers in other directions. And so the disruption to relationships today, even though we're still talking about this on the scale of a year, in terms of how long the war has been going on, the disruption will, will, will last for a decade or more. And how big will the disruption be simply because researchers can't access the Russian Arctic in the way that they, they used to be able to? How important is this data which may now be missing? As a member of the climate research community and someone who, who spends quite a bit of time in trying to understand broad changes across the Arctic, it's really informative to look at case studies where changes are the most extreme. Two examples of that are in the Russian Arctic. The Baltic Sea is is a marine environment that's warming much faster than other marine environments across the Arctic. And so understanding how that warming affects different species in terms of biodiversity and species loss, species migration, the emergence of invasive species, all those require a broad sampling that in part is, is in Russian territory. Another example is, is wildfires. Most have probably seen in news recently that wildfires are on the rise across the Arctic. And in recent years, some of the most extreme wildfire seasons have been observed in the Siberian region of Russia. And so understanding what drives those wildfire processes and the impact they have on the landscape requires collaboration with Russian scientists and and merging their data with observations and the work being done, say, in North America, where we also see wildfires on the rise. Just on a personal level, how has this affected your own work, your own collaborations, and 
has it completely severed ties for you or some communication and some collaboration still ongoing? Well, in, in one direct way that has affected me as, as an individual scientist, I am a co-investigator on a project funded by the National Science Foundation's Navigating the New Arctic program that is focused on understanding the impact of increased rain during winter on Arctic systems, including Arctic communities. And one of the best examples of, of, of this impact is on how rain on snow affects reindeer husbandry. We had a large portion of our research centered on working with scholars and reindeer herders in, in the Yamal region of Russia. And so within that project, our collaboration with Russian scholars and with communities, reindeer herders in Russia, has been you know, entirely disrupted. What are your hopes then for how this situation might develop in the future? Well, I think my hope probably mirrors the hope of other scientists uh, that the war uh, ends soon and that these long-standing relationships can uh, begin to be repaired and that new funding can be provided for resuming collaborative activities with Russian scientists. And I would say I, I've had a growing frustration over the last year uh, just at the mere uh, fact that we've had to have these conversations, that scientific freedom, peaceful cooperation between scientists, the independence of research is connected to a war, especially as a global community, as, as an Arctic community, that we're facing such extreme challenges with the pace of climate change. It, it all boils down to the science being disrupted in the scientific freedom, the trust within the scientific community, and the trust in the science that is not being biased by decisions that were tied to the war uh, is, is something that will also take a while to move past. That was Matthew Miller, and this has been our first episode of Freedom and Safety in Science. But what happens when research is disrupted not by armed conflict, but by conflict between politics and academia? We'll be exploring such threats to research integrity in the United States in the next episode. And now our sponsored slot from the International Science Council about how it's exploring freedom, responsibility and safety in science. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam Levy. Scientists must be allowed to challenge the established truths and also to give new answers. But freedom must be balanced by responsibilities. The scientists today cannot just hunker down in the laboratory, oblivious to what's going on in a non-scientific world. You can't escape the context in which you're exercising your freedom. Human societies have always grappled with concepts of freedom and responsibility in their search for knowledge. But as societies evolve, so do their perspectives, and our world is changing more rapidly than ever. The past few decades have brought social and technological developments that have changed the way science is practised and shared around the world, from social media to artificial intelligence. And while these have the potential to bring huge benefits to science, they also come with new responsibilities. At the same time, we are living through unprecedented levels of mis- and disinformation. Attacks and harassment against scientists are on the rise globally. 
and political tensions, conflicts and discrimination threaten scientific freedoms around the world. Trends and challenges like these highlight that our scientific freedom and responsibilities must constantly be revisited. The International Science Council, the ISC, is committed to raising awareness and promoting thought around these issues. The ISC is the largest international non-governmental science organisation of its kind, working globally to advance science and provide scientific expertise, advice and influence on major issues concerning science and society. In this podcast series, we'll be exploring contemporary perspectives on the free and responsible practice of science in the early 21st century and the challenges science faces. I'm Marnie Chesterton. In this first episode, what new threats does scientific freedom face today and what responsibilities do scientists have to live up to? The ISC's vision is to advance science as a global public good. Science should be of benefit to all citizens of the world. Unfortunately, scientific knowledge is still not universally shared and accessible. This is what we mean with the vision of advanced science as a global public good. This is Anne Husbeck. Professor of Immunology at the Arctic University of Norway and ISC Vice President for Freedom and Responsibility in Science. Science which is performed freely and responsibly provides immense value and benefits to society, whether it is in practical applications such as food production in medicine and innovation of every kind, but also through expanding the understanding of nature space and technologies. Understanding and knowledge involves all aspects of our modern lives and are also the answers to challenges in the modern world. For this vision to become a reality, we must uphold one of the ISC's key principles, freedom and responsibility in science. But what does that mean in practice? Scientists require four freedoms. Freedoms of movement, of association, of expression and communication. But freedom must be balanced by responsibilities. And scientists at all levels have a responsibility to carry out and communicate scientific work with integrity, respect, fairness, trustworthiness and transparency, but also recognize its benefits and possible harms. Freedom and responsibility, then, are two sides of the same coin. In 2023, scientific freedoms face a complex array of external pressures, which means that responsibility in science is more important than ever. In recent times, we see increasing attacks on scientists for expressing truths which are inconvenient to government or vested interests or or people who are wedded to intractable anti-science belief systems. Robert French is Chancellor of the University of Western Australia and a member of the ISC's Committee for Freedom and Responsibility in Science. Nature conducted a survey in 2021 of 300 scientists who had commented publicly about COVID-19 and 15% had received death threats. At the global level, we see the rise of authoritarian populism. 
affecting scientific freedom. And usually you find that connected with the denigration of science and scientists. And you see that social media amplifies those views. We're also seeing geopolitical tensions and conflict impacting on scientific freedom. And of course, at a broader level, governments are increasingly interested in the national security implications of collaborations and funding arrangements. So there are many fronts on which scientific freedom is under threat. By the same token, scientists working today also bear unique responsibilities, like, for example, considering the risks and uncertainties of new technologies. Obvious examples are the growth of and development of artificial intelligence. And in the um, life sciences, heritable human genome editing using CRISPR technology. And that involves the alteration of a genetic material in a living person in a way that can be transmitted to that person's descendants to prevent serious disease and when no reasonable alternative exists. But you're bringing in criteria which are contestable and evaluative. And I think the debate has to be had and scientists have to participate uh, in it. One further area of, I think, enhanced responsibility is teaching science and enhancing scientific literacy. Because where you have ignorance of science or scientific illiteracy, you have a space which is too readily filled by what I call the snake oil salesman of anti-science. Given these varied and complex challenges, how can we protect scientific freedoms and uphold scientific responsibilities in the 21st century? For its part, the ISC has developed four key principles to help shape our understanding of what science is and how it should be practised today. Firstly, that science is a global public good. Secondly, that science belongs to everybody, that it's it's part of the collective heritage of all humanity. Thirdly, that science is universal but also diverse. And importantly, there's a recognition that ethnic linguistic, cultural and gender diversity of research communities actually brings to bear understandings which can be vital to the development of scientific knowledge, different ways of looking at things. And the fourth principle is uh, the pluralism and autonomy of scientific uh, institutions. The ISC principles should enable science to add maximum value and benefit to all of us, to be, in short, a global public good. But Robert says there is an important caveat. It's important to bear in mind that the reciprocal relationship between science and society must not be translated into a requirement that all scientific research be demonstrated a priori to be capable of translation into concrete societal benefits. Basic science is the area of research in which the greatest advances have been made. And there are cultural and geographical perspectives to consider here too. We have to accept that some of the perspectives reflected in my responses will not necessarily be shared in full measure in some parts of the world and in some cases may be taken in some political systems to represent quote western values unquote so the global engagement of science has to be sensitive while maintaining fundamental principles the isc is dedicated to ensuring freedom and responsibility through the work of its committee and in everything it does And to give Anne Husbeck the final word, this is something that needs to be constantly reappraised. I think the awareness of freedom and responsibility in science can never be stopped. But in everything we do, we look to the global scientific community to listen and to learn about freedoms and responsibilities. 
to ensure that science has a place in the society with the value and the value for everyone. That's it for this episode in the series on freedom and responsibility in science from the International Science Council. The ISC has released a discussion paper on these issues. You can find the paper and learn more about the ISC's mission online at council.science forward slash podcast. Next time, we'll be looking at scientific autonomy. How do political interference, funding priorities and academic performance metrics infringe on scientific freedom? And at what point does autonomy compromise scientific responsibility? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.